All right, church, let's go to 1 John chapter 5 this morning. I'm, I'm really uh, encouraged and excited to hear some, uh, some of you guys pray for um, Travis and Becky Lasica. Um, they're back in town. There are missionaries who have been in training um, in Missouri uh, for the last nine months. They're back for just a short period of time. Then they'll be heading to Arizona where Travis will be finishing up um, some of his, I, I believe, pilot mechanic training. He's already a pilot, but they're um, destined for Papua New Guinea. Um, to go into unreached areas, and tra- uh, Travis, as a pilot, is going to be flying uh, bush planes into very small patches of ground, um, and so he needs some specialized training for that, and I'm really excited that some of you have felt impressed to pray for them, because they're actually going to be speaking here in two weeks, um, and they're going to take the whole Sunday morning service. Um, he said he isn't willing to sing for you, um, <laughs> but they're going to they're gonna take the message portion and share about what the Lord's been doing in them and where he's taking them next. So it was just cool to hear you guys pray for them. I'm excited that you get to, to hear from them in just a couple of weeks, and we can't wait to, to host them here. First John chapter 5 is where we're going this morning, and as we're thinking about this text, and really what we're coming to here is the end of the body of this letter. This morning when we end in verse 13 of this chapter, uh, we're going to be going into, after that, really just kind of the conclusion or the postscript, if you will. Um, So the body of the letter is going to end in our text this morning, and as I was preparing this message, something came to mind to kind of connect the dots, if you will, between our study from last week, which ended with uh, John talking about um, the victory that has conquered the world in Christ. And this is our faith, he says. And as I was thinking about faith, um, it's awesome how God always gives me these opportunities to learn from my children, especially at Home Depot. And so this week, uh, before I prepped this study, I was at Home Depot, and we were on the rope aisle. Have you ever gone down the rope aisle? The rope aisle's awesome, because there's so many ropes. And I feel like I'm five years old again, walking through the rope aisle. And, you know, and Sarah's looking for knobs for different things and all these practical things. And I'm like, look at how big this rope is. You know, like pulling the big chains out. She's like, I can't take you anywhere. So... I took my kids with me so I could blame them for my my immaturity. And as we were on the rope aisle, one of my kids grabbed a bundle of rope and was like, look, Dad, climbing rope. And I was like, no, it's not. And so I showed them. I was like, first of all, look at the weight rating. Your father should not climb with this rope, right? This rope, if I'm falling and it has to arrest my fall, snap, it's gone, right? This is not weight rated for my rear end. And there was something else about it that I showed them. I turned the tag over and I said, do you see these words written in capitals and in bold? Not for climbing. It's like, so this is not climbing rope and you should never climb with this rope. Just because a rope is thick and it looks really beefy doesn't mean that it's meant to bear the weight of your body, that you should entrust your life to it while dangling from a cliff. And some of you are like, I have no intention of ever dangling from a cliff. Thank you very much. But I do occasionally. Just for kicks. I'm just kidding. When I'm hanging out with the guys in the mountains and stuff, we'll, we'll do some of these um, high mountain drills like snow school. And, and I've been part of these ascent trips where they actually lower you down using nothing but dead man bars that they dig in. Yeah, they're called dead man bars. If they ever want to tie your end of your rope into a, onto a dead man bar, you might just be a dead man. But anyway, they lower us down into these, these thick crevices and they make you work your way out of them. But you're dangling by this rope and there's really no bottom to what you're hanging into and it's a little unnerving. 
So your whole life is entrusted to this piece of rope. Because if it snaps anywhere along the line, that's it. Bye-bye, Mike. Just like bye-bye, Birdie. Not all rope is climbing rope. Just because a rope looks beefy doesn't mean you should put your faith in it. And the value of faith, the value of faith rests solely upon what or whom it has been entrusted. The value of your faith does not lie in how much you believe something. It lies in what you have entrusted your life to. Because I can believe that a piece of rope will hold me all the way from the top of my head to the bottom of my little toes. No, bigger toes. But like toes, right? I can believe it from head to toe. But what's going to matter the most is if that rope was worthy of my trust. The value of faith rests solely upon what or whom it has been entrusted. Another way to say it is this. It's wise to only put your faith in a rope that is able to arrest your fall. You should only put your trust or your faith into something that can save you. Last week in 1 John chapter 5, verse 4, we read this. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And I think some people are like, yeah, see my faith, it's locked down, bro. It's so, I'm sorry, I just went like surfer guy. My faith is very secure because I just believe it with all of my heart. Well, you can believe that gravity with all of your heart doesn't apply to you, but if you jump out of the plane, gravity applies. No matter how much you believe it or not, there are absolutes. You must put your faith in something that is worthy of your trust. And he didn't stop there in verse 4. With this open-ended understanding of faith, John continues in verse 5 and says this, Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? There's your rope. He says the overcoming faith is only a faith that is placed and entrusted to Jesus himself. Amen? That is the only faith that can save you. This is the rope that can be trusted. Jesus is the son of God. But we don't trust it by holding it in our hands on the ground and saying the words, yeah, this would hold me. Am I proving anything to my kids if I grabbed a real climbing rope that could hold me? And showed it to him and said, you see this right here? I think this would stop me. I think this could hold me up. I think it's proven. It's tested. It's absolute. Is my faith actually being placed in that rope? No, because I'm telling you what I believe. But what you're going to find out is that you don't really see what I believe until I put my weight on it and I dangle from it. That's real faith. Real faith is applicational. It's real world. It's something that you are actually doing, not just talking about. The sincerity of our faith requires us to entrust the rope with our body weight and let go of everything else that we would want to grab hold of. I think of Alex Honnold, who uh, free soloed El Cap a few years back. And as they were scaling this, you know, El, El Cap's just this legendary wall of granite in Yosemite. And as he's mapping the, the rock and trying to figure out the route he's going to take without a rope, by the way, which is insane. They're, they're mapping the rock, and so they're roped up, like figuring out the routes they're going to take. And, and I remember one scene from the documentary, he's rappelling down this thing and just blasting down this rock, like whoosh, you know, just like shooting down. And I was like, man, he makes it look so easy. But I mean, my stomach would be in my brain. Like if I was doing something, I love, I I love being at high, you know, at at altitude. I love being up in the air. Heights don't really bother me, but to repel off El Cap with nothing balloons, like, 
of just like shooting guys like, and he says, he's like, this is the most epic repel ever, you know? And I'm like, he's got a lot of trust in that rope because he's just zipping down this rock face with his entire life dangling by it. William Barclay said this, to believe in Jesus Christ is not simply to accept what he says is true. It is to commit ourselves into his hands and for this, for time and for eternity. You are not just saying you believe in Jesus. You're repelling off the rock with all of your hope in him. You're going to go places that most people aren't going to even consider going in your life because you trust and believe that Jesus can absolutely sustain and hold you. That he can hold you up, that he will not break or let you down. But you don't know if your faith is really there until you push off from that cliff. And any of you climbers know exactly what I'm talking about, that point where you entrust yourself to the rope. Remember for the first time what that felt like? Where you entrust your body to the rope, and you go, I'm fine. Right? Because you're not gripping with your feet anymore, and it's almost like you have to release every single toe. Some of y'all crazy, and you're just like, whoa, you know, it's like, let it go. I'm like, mm, okay. If you want an idea biblically of what it looks like to go, oh, okay, that would be Gideon putting the fleece out. <laughs> right? That would be Gideon be like, uh, sure, but can we check real quick? I need to make sure. I need to know that you're going to catch me here, God. God's like, sure. You know what's awesome about that picture is really going to like, ha, Gideon, what a chump. No, God was so patient with him. God was so patient with him when he was like, I need to test. I need to know because I'm scared. And God's like, it's cool. I understand you're scared. You're a mighty man of valor. And Gideon's like, who? He's like, you. You're a mighty man of valor. Get ready to do some awesome things for God. Trust the rope. You guys, to believe in Jesus Christ is not simply to accept what he says as true. It is to commit ourselves into his hands for time and for eternity. It means that I may not feel great about what I'm doing, but I'm trusting him. I'm secured to the right line. We do this. Because he's worthy of our faith, he has proven himself, and we have his testimony before us in our text this morning. And that's why we talk about the world-conquering faith of the believer that's in the strength of Jesus himself to hold us, to care for us, to secure us. And he continues, and I'll begin with verse 5, and we'll read down through verse 13 of 1 John chapter 5. You can follow along with me. If you have your Bible out, this is where we are. Who is the one who conquers the world, but the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Jesus Christ, he is the one who came by water and blood, not by water only, but by water and by blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three are in agreement. If we accept human testimony, God's testimony is greater because it's God's testimony that he has given about his son. Just as a quick insertion, that means God himself tested the rope. The one who believes, verse 10 says, in the son of God has this testimony within himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony God has given about his son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. The one who has the son has life. 
The one who does not have the Son of God does not have life. And I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Amen? Jesus Christ, he says, is the one who came by water and blood. Not by water only, but by water and by blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. You guys, this is one of those texts that you kind of fear as a pastor to teach because it's a bit confusing. It's a bit confusing when you approach it and you're like, how does this fit together? What's he really getting at? In John's mind and experience, the problem with believing Jesus to be God in human flesh is not for lack of evidence. He's proving the actual incarnation of Jesus Christ himself, of the Messiah who took on human flesh and was fully man and fully God. And the reason this matters, I'm going to give you some of the background here, is because there was a lot of heresy about who Jesus was that's getting passed around at this time. There's a lot of heresy that's being taught about who Jesus is and who we believe him to be and what the scriptures say. It's the heresy of the Gnostics that we see John addressing here again, as he has before in this letter. And by understanding what they were teaching, we can better understand a passage that has been really difficult to understand for some. The Gnostics, believing that spirit was altogether good and that matter altogether evil, denied that God came in the flesh. Instead, they would explain it a different way. And they had a belief of which the second century theologian Irenaeus tells us connected with the name of Serenthus, which was one of the principal representatives of Gnosticism. And he was an exact contemporary of John. Serenthus taught that at the baptism, the divine Christ descended into the man Jesus in the form of a dove. In other words, Jesus was just a normal guy. And then when he was baptized, the spirit came down in that moment and actually indwelled him. And then Jesus allied, as it were, with the Christ who had descended upon him, brought the message of the God who had up to this point been unknown and lived in perfect virtue. Then the Christ departed from the man, Jesus, and returned to glory. And it was only the man, Jesus, who was crucified on Calvary and afterwards raised from the dead. That gives us some very big theological problems. Simply put, Serenthus taught that Jesus became divine at the baptism, that divinity left him before the cross, and that he died simply a man. In other words, God did not go to the cross and die on behalf of guilty sinners. There was no perfect sacrifice. We have a big gap in our salvation if Serenthus is right. But he's not. And this is exactly what John is trying to teach us. Jesus, God in human flesh, he was fully man and fully God. And he made, as the writer of Hebrews would say, the atoning sacrifice, which only God himself could do. Because no human being dying in the place of others as a sinner himself could make a sacrifice sufficient to cleanse us from sin. So to believe the teachings of Gnosticism was to rob the life and death of Jesus of all value for us. And by seeking to protect God from contact with human pain, it removes him from the act of redemption. Because he didn't partake in our pain. And by the way, all throughout the New Testament, you can disprove this teaching of the Gnostics. Because it's essential to our faith that Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, died and rose again. It was into our temptations and pain that Jesus was born. He lived perfectly, died sacrificially, and was resurrected triumphantly. And Paul further disproves Gnostic theology by declaring in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11... That we ought to adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. 
you'll recognize this verse, but notice some of the descriptives that he uses as a counterattack to Gnosticism in the first century. He says, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, notice that he came as a man. Now, he came upon a man and indwelt him. He came as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. God himself, the subject, Jesus Christ. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. Amen. You guys all throughout new Testament theology, we have proof that Gnostic teachings were heretical. Notice that we use the scriptures to disprove them. How do you disprove heretical teaching around you? Oh, not running up to someone and smacking them because they're saying something that's wrong. How do you logically look at the scriptures and come in with good sound doctrine and good theology into situations where people are teaching things that are heretical? We use the scriptures. You see, guys... Here's the truth of the matter. Jesus was baptized and came by water to purify. He came by water. I believe it represents both his baptism and also some pretty key New Testament texts to talk about the water of Jesus. He came by water to purify his people from the power of sin. But it wasn't just by water, as Jesus says, or as John says in verse 6, not by water only, but by water and by blood. Jesus physically died on the cross. He came by blood because we know from the Old Testament, blood pardons sin. Water purifies, blood pardons. He pardons his people. He puts away the guilt of their sin, removing condemnation for it through his sacrifice on the cross. And John 19 verses 34 through 35 is all the more powerful in light of these verses. And it's there that we read during the crucifixion and then the death of Jesus But one of the soldiers pierced his side with the spear, and at once what came out? Blood and water. Now, yes, there's a scientific reason why this would happen, but it was also extremely symbolic because it's through the piercing of our Savior, the death of our Messiah, that we are both purified and pardoned of our sin. He is faithful and just to cleanse us of our sin. He has purified us, and he has pardoned us. Oof. He who saw this, and notice this in that passage in John chapter 19, verse 35, he who saw this has testified so that you also may believe. His testimony is true, and he knows he's telling the truth. In other words, John says, I'll take this one all the way to the grave and beyond and beyond. There are scientific reasons why the physical blood and water came out, but may we never forget the symbolism that by his death on the cross flowed the blood to pardon and the water to purify. Now this is where it gets really fun. And for all you Bible students, you're going to enjoy this, I hope. Second half of verse 6. I hope that's all of us, by the way. Second half of verse 6. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. Now look at verse 7. For there are three who that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. 
They agree with each other. John the Baptist was told prophetically that the Spirit would descend on the Messiah when he baptized him. I'll put it up on the, actually, they'll put it, BJ will put it up on the screen. I was going to say me, but, you know, I set it up, but credit where credit's due, BJ. Good job back there. John chapter 1, verse 29. The next day, John, that's John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I told you about. After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. No doubt in John the Baptist's mind that Jesus was God in human flesh. No doubt about it. I didn't know him, but I came baptizing with water so that he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I saw the spirit descending from heaven like a dove and he rested on him. Verse 33, I didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water told me the one you see the spirit descending and resting on. He is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and testified that this is the son of God in the Old Testament. This is really cool. In the Old Testament, the office of the priest was a foreshadow of Christ. It was a type for us to look at and say, this is a type of Jesus. This gives us a picture of the ministry of Jesus. That's why Jesus is called our high priest. All throughout the book of Hebrews, which is an amazing supplement to all that we're studying this morning. If you look at Exodus 29 and you look at Leviticus 8, you'll have the process for which the priests were ordained. And three things were always used in the ordination of priests. He was washed with water for purification. A sacrifice was brought and his ear, his thumb, and his toe, right, 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 this is symbolic, were touched with blood to pardon sin. And then he was anointed with oil in token of the anointing of the Holy Spirit, saying that this is God's man that he has put in this place. And that's why Jesus is our high priest, because he's the ultimate picture of all of these things. He purifies us with his water, he pardons us with his blood, and he fills us with his spirit. He himself having the spirit descend upon him, which was like God saying, yes, the Messiah has come when John the Baptist brought him out of the water. Every priest came into the office of the priesthood by spirit, by water, and by blood as a matter of type. And this is exactly what John's pointing us to in here in 1 John chapter 5. He's saying God has not only testified of the son in the same way, But we need to remember, church, he has testified of his power and his ability in us as well because he's given us the same things. He has done the same things for us, his people, his church. These three things testify of Jesus being the Christ, our Messiah, the water, the blood, and the spirit. It gives us clarity of the words of Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2. There's no slide for this one, BJ. I apologize. Just giving you a warning. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 10, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Me? Yes, you, and you, and you, and you, if you're in Christ. A holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We are a priesthood We are called the water, the blood, and the spirit. These three things are given to us for purification, pardon. And the spirit, as Jesus said, who is our counselor. All of these have been given to us, church. Why are we such a mess? Why are we struggling so? Because we're walking in the flesh and not the spirit. 
That purification is for you and I. That pardon is for you and I. The empowering of the Spirit is for us. If we are struggling, if we are walking, not having trials and tribulations, I mean if we are are a mess on the inside, if we are falling apart, we are not relying on the Spirit. You guys, I understand it's difficult. And that's why Paul said, you know what? I'm not going to use easy language here. Crucify your flesh. You need to deal very, very dramatically with your flesh. You need to put it to death. That flesh has no place anymore. And by flesh, I mean the sin nature. Ephesians 1 verses 13 through 14 says this, In him you were also sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. God has sealed you when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believe the Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. In other words, until God says, listen, I put a down payment on you. I'm going to redeem you because I've purchased you. I've bought you you. I've paid for you in full. You're mine, and I'm coming to take you for my own. And that's a beautiful thought when you're a bride. When you're the bride of Christ, he says, I'm coming for you. In due time, I'm going to come for you. That ought to thrill us. Yes, even the guys. Because I am honored, and I am thrilled, and I am excited for Jesus to come and to redeem me. I cannot wait for it. John continues after talking about the three that testify. And he says this in verse 9. He's going to build off this idea that this is the testimony of God as to who the Messiah is and who we are in him. And he says, if we accept human testimony in verse 9, God's testimony is greater Because it's God's testimony that he has given us about his son. The one who believes in the son of God has this testimony within himself. That's the spirit. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony of God. He's given about his son. This is something that God is doing inside of us. The law was very clear about this in Deuteronomy 19. In verse 15, one witness cannot establish any iniquity or sin against a person, whatever the person has done. It says, a fact must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. The water, the blood, and the spirit are the witnesses of God's work. He has given us the three. We understand that if someone in our courts of law is going to be tried, there there have to be witnesses, not just one. It's not just my word against yours. That will never hold up in a court of law. You have to have evidence. You have to have witnesses. The point that John's making is that if we agree to allow due process to be decided by two or three human witnesses to provide a fair testimony then how much more powerful, powerful are three divine witnesses that agree with God's testimony, the water, the blood, and the spirit? He says, I have given you the testimony. And, and all of this for us churches, uh, sometimes we're like, yeah, yeah, I get, we, we believe that. It's, it's, it's doctrinal. It's in the scriptures. Do we live in a place of security because of it? This should make the foundation that sometimes under your feet feels like it's shaking get real solid real quick. To look at the evidence that God has given us for his existence and for the finished work of Jesus on the cross and to say, I have given you testimony and witnesses according to these things. You can believe it. You can entrust the weight of your life to this rope. It's time to get your feet off the rocks. It's time to stop holding on 
and to start trusting and walking in faith. If we believe people in any context, why wouldn't we believe God in every context? I'll say that again. If we believe people in any context, why wouldn't we believe God in every context? He has always been trustworthy. He has never failed. The one who believes in the Son of God has this testimony within himself, he says in verse 10. There is such a huge difference, church. Don't miss this in believing someone and believing in that person. If I believe someone, I'm simply accepting whatever statement that person is making. If I believe them, oh, I believe you. That means I believe your statement. If I believe in someone, I'm accepting that whole person and all they stand for in complete trust. I'm putting my belief in them. Not just, I believe what you're saying. It's the difference of holding the rope and leaving the cliff. It's entrusting your body to it or it's saying, I think it would hold my body. That's the difference. Whoever refuses to believe in effect calls God a liar, refusing to believe God's own testimony regarding his son. If you don't believe in Jesus, if you don't accept Christ, then you are, in effect, calling God a liar. You're calling him a liar and saying that he has not always been true. And that's a different conversation altogether. May there never be an evil, unbelieving heart found in us. Verse 11, he continues, this is the testimony. This is what brings it home. This locks in so much of what's been said. God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. If we believe that God has given us eternal life, I'm not only willing, I'm pretty excited to leave the cliff. I'm pretty excited to entrust myself to that rope, knowing that he has given me life eternal. It's eternally speaking, risk-free. You're like, oh, there's tons of risk in this life. Sure, absolutely. But eternally speaking, from God's perspective, as those who are sealed, and this, I know the missionary is going to be like, whoop, you know, but like, you're good. God's going to take care of you. You know, it's that whole scenario of like, what happens if you die? Jesus says, don't fear people who can put you to death. Fear God. Fear God and recognize this. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in Jesus Christ. We have nothing to fear. Reverential fear for God is appropriate and good. But when I'm afraid of things in this life and I'm hesitating to do what God's told me to do because I can't be vulnerable like this, I can't go through that, yes, you can. You absolutely can. The Spirit of God is inside of you and he will get you to the other side. It may not be easy. It may be difficult. You may need a lot of help, but that's what we're here for. That's why you have the body because we walk together through this to get to the other side. We're going to the end of the line together. What if I die? Then I'll see you there. And if I die, you'll see me there. Our eternity is done. 
in Christ. It is sealed up. It's done. The one who has the son has life. Verse 12 says, the one who does not have the son of God does not have life. I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. John says, lock it into place. And he's used that phrase so many times in this letter, so that you may know this. He wants the church, these beloved children that he loves to remember this every day of their life. You need to know that you have eternal life. The Greek word for eternal used here means far more than lasting forever. It's not just like forever and ever and ever. Like when you're a kid and you're trying to think of infinity and you start spinning in your head. I don't know if you guys ever did that, but I did. I remember I would like lay at night and try and imagine what eternity would be like. It's like, and then there's more and then there's more. And oftentimes I fall asleep trying to imagine like how long eternity is because we're bound to this physical existence. We don't see in that dimension. We can't understand what eternity will really be like. That's the realm of God. And that's where he's taking us. He's taking us on to eternity. It's going to show us what we were created to be in the beginning. A life that lasted forever, if that's all eternity means, could be a curse and not a blessing at all, depending on the state of things. Think about how God pushed Adam and Eve out of the garden after they had eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? He says, don't let them eat from the tree of life. Why? He goes, you don't want to be like this forever. Think about that. I think there's some powerful symbolism there, but try and take it as practically in as real world as you can. Think about being bound to your current existence forever. Bound to sin, stuck in a sin-filled fleshy life. You know the things that you want to be removed from you, the things that aren't of God. Imagine never being able to be free of those things. God says, no, get them out. Why? Because I'm sending my son to save them from their sin. And someday they will be the way that they should have been from the beginning. I will purge sin out of them. I will cleanse them. I will purify, pardon, and empower them. And they will be with me. And Revelation 21 says that their dwelling will be with God himself. We will dwell with God someday, church. And it's going to be awesome. That is the hope of eternity. That's the idea that eternal, eternal ideas and, and, and phraseology should draw us to. It's not this life that will be eternal for us. And to exist in eternity in our current state would be horrible. I don't want to stay like this forever. To be born again is to be given new life. It's his life. And John began his gospel in John chapter 1 verse 4 and said, In him, speaking of Jesus, was life. And that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. He says the light of God, his life is for you. And church, we don't have to base how we're going to handle the next difficulty or the current situation off of the present circumstances. Does that make sense? You don't have to base how you're handling the now on the situation now. You base how you handle the now on the eternal cleansing and blessing that is in Christ Jesus that is for us. I handle this situation based on that. In other words, I'm going to entrust myself to a rope that is secure and can hold me. I don't have to think about what's below I don't have to think about what's underneath that rope. All I need to do is entrust myself to it and get to work. 
in God, there is peace. And therefore, eternal life means serenity. It means a life liberated from the fears which haunt the human situation. In God, there is power. And therefore, eternal life means the defeat of frustration. This is what eternal life means for us when we read it. It means a life filled with the power of God and therefore victorious over every circumstance. In God, there is holiness and therefore eternal life means the defeat of sin. It means a life clothed with the purity of God and armed against contamination from a wicked and corrupt world. In God, there's love and therefore eternal life means the end of bitterness and hatred. It means a life which has the love of God in its heart and the undefeatable love of men and women in all its feelings and in all its actions. In God, there is life. Therefore, eternal life means the defeat of death. It means a life which is indestructible because it has in it the indestructibility imparted by God himself. Wow, we've been given quite a bit in Christ. Isn't it overwhelming? We could talk about it for days. But why don't we just live like it instead? Why don't we stop talking about who he's called us to be and start living in the truth of who he has empowered us to be? Because when God, in his word, speaks to us about eternal life, He's telling us that he's giving us something that is intrinsic to his existence alone. It's eternal life. And it's something we've been given now. And John says, I've written these things to you here at the end of the body of his letter. Not the end end, but before he gets into the postscript, if you will. He says, I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. He says, if you can grasp that, you're going to be okay. Because that's reality. Thus, Jesus, faith in Jesus truly is how we conquer the ways of the world. For there is no way of the world that can separate us from the love of God that has been given to us in Christ. This is our future And it's our hope right now. It's our full assurance. You guys, um, be patient with the process that you're going through. Be patient with the discipline of God as it comes. Be patient with His cleansing of you, His ministry in your life. Because you know that according to Hebrews chapter 12, it is going to beget the peaceful fruit of righteousness when we submit to God's process of discipline in life. And I, I quote it often to you guys, but I'm going to do it again. In Galatians 6, 9, it says, don't grow weary in doing good. Because in due season, you will reap if you don't give up. The last part's just as important as the beginning. You can't give up. And we've been given eternal life and we've been empowered by the Holy Spirit so that we don't have to give up. We can go all the way to the end of the line, honoring God at every turn if we submit ourselves to Him and trust in Him. Let's allow Him to purify us, pardon. He has pardoned us through His blood, cleansed us. He washes us with the water, the Word. And let's walk in the Spirit not in the flesh. Together.
So we need each other. We need each other for this task. It's not a solo task. It's a team effort. That's why we're a body and not a weird limb laying out in a field somewhere. Because a limb apart from the body is gross. But the body together functioning and working in perfect unison, it's beautiful. That's what God designed us to do. Worship team, come on up. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for um, your word. And I, I pray, God, that if I've confused in any way that you would clarify because your word is not confusing, it is truth, and it is meant to strengthen the body of the believer as good, healthy food. And Lord, we thank you that you um, don't leave us alone for this task, and I know for myself at least, I, I, I've seen what it looks like when I try to do these things alone, and it's just a big mess. And God, I pray that we would entrust ourselves to you and to what you um, have done for us, and, and that Jesus, you are not only our mediator, but you're our advocate that brings us to the Father as a friend, as a Savior, as our God, our King, our High Priest, perfectly pure and able to purify and pardon and empower your church, your followers. Show us what it looks like, Lord, in the very practical ways in our life, um, how we can and trust our weight to this rope. Uh, we can lean back and, and put all of our hope and all of our lives in your hands. And As we just take a moment, church, I want to encourage you to keep your heads bowed, your eyes closed. Would you just seek maybe the beginning of the answer to that question? Lord, how can I push away from the rock and let go and entrust myself to this rope? And trust myself by faith to what Jesus has said can and will hold me. And leave my life in your hands. It's a picture, Jesus, of how sure and solid. But there's also this sense of I'm putting myself out there and I'm going to rely on just you and I'm not going to hold on. I'm not going to hold on to what I can control I'm going to hold on to you, Jesus, and what you control. And I'm going to trust myself to that. Let's take a moment. Let's just seek the Lord individually in our hearts. And then we'll sing and worship him together.